there's great wisdom in the teachings of Jesus, and I agree with those teachings. And things like turn the other cheek are, are very important, as opposed to an eye for an eye. An eye for an eye leads everyone blind. You know, if, if, if Jesus is saving people, I won't stand in his way. I do believe that some of the teachings back then can't apply it to this society because, you know, that was then and this is now. And um, with everything, like, we have to, we have to move the time. Maybe it was right then, back in those days, but now, you know, it's not relevant anymore. And who knows, is, is it true or is it false? No one knows. It's all like, you know, beautiful, lovely story written by someone and uh, it makes for a good movie and a good book. If there are people in the world, as there are so many, who find fulfillment and satisfaction in following the teachings of someone who lived uh, 2,000 years ago, like, what's wrong with that? It's okay. Just do it in a way that is, uh, that is peaceful and decent. Excellent. So good to um, be with you again. Um, it's uh, been a. It's great to be back preaching for me personally. Uh, it's been a little bit of a, a break for me, and um, we are in, as Matt said, a, a new series. A new series. We are uh, examining the seven uh, kind of great claims of Jesus uh, through the uh, Gospel of of John. We we call them the the seven I am statements of of Christ. And in Jesus saying, I am, I am, I am, so, so many times over and over again in such a pronounced way, uh, what Jesus is really doing is uh, making a cosmic claim. Uh, he's making a cosmic claim with reference to a, a fairly famous scripture from about 1,300 years before uh, where we're about to have read for us in, in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, because in Exodus chapter 3, um, uh, Moses would be confronted with this kind of a burning bush. And, and God himself would speak to Moses out of this uh, burning bush. And in this conversation that Moses has with God, uh, Moses would ask a question. Uh, Moses would just ask, what's your name? Who are you? What's your name? And, and God would respond by saying this, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And so by saying, I am, I am, I am, I am, over and over and over again, what Jesus is doing is, is not only making a, a kind of a claim to be God, a claim of deity, but more than that, uh, Jesus is claiming to be the God of Exodus chapter 3. Uh, Jesus is claiming to be the voice that spoke to Moses out of the, the burning bush. I am. And in saying, I am, Jesus was ultimately saying that I am the, the, the shepherd that leads the people of God out of slavery. I am the pillar of fire by night. I am the pillar of cloud by day. I am the reality to which the Old Testament man appointed to. I am the one who spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I am the one of whom it is written, Moses went up and saw the God of Israel. I am. In our passage that we'll have read, Jesus says this, No one has seen the Father except he who is from God. No one has seen the Father except he is from God. Jesus is saying what the Bible says on more than one occasion, that no one, no person, no human being apart from him ever, not for one single second, has seen God the Father. No one. 
But Moses went up and saw the God of Israel. Jesus says, I am. I am. And so in Jesus in Exodus chapter 3, what he was doing was actually starting a sentence. He was starting a sentence that he himself would finish around 1,300 years later in the New Testament. A sentence that he would finish in, in seven ways. Uh, through seven I am statements. And as Jesus in the New Testament would kind of continue to reveal his name or at least titles, we, we learned so much about him and his nature. And this is a controversial thing to say today. It was a controversial thing to say back then because Jesus says to the people, I am the bread of life. That's the I am statement that we'll be looking at today. And as he begins to explain and expound the wonder of what it means for him to be the bread of life, the people that are listening, ultimately they they misunderstand what he says and they get offended by what he says, Um, which really is kind of No different to what we kind of see uh, today. So often people will read parts of the Bible or hear soundbites from the Bible and kind of misunderstand what it's really saying and get offended. What happens today is what happened then. Ultimately, Jesus gets cancelled. This is what it says. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked walked with him. Uh, This is the first unsubscribe and unfollow in history. Uh, Therefore, the truth is that the culture that we find ourselves in today is really, uh, there's no innovation. uh, Because people have been being cancelled for thousands of years. And actually, through history, it's far more common for people to be boiled, uh, burnt at the stake, or beheaded, uh, than to simply lose their jobs. Um, So be encouraged. So what we're going to do is we're going to have the scripture read for us, and then we'll chew together on what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Super, super. So so let me set the scene. Uh, The day before 
this, what we've just had read, literally the day before, uh, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people, the, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, in reality, this was, was 5,000 men. Um, there would have been more present that he, he fed. Um, there probably would have been certainly women and children around. And so the number probably would have been more like 20,000 or even up to 25,000 people. Uh, this really is kind of the, the, the number of people roughly that can fit into the American Express Community Stadium, such as the other night in the big European tie. Uh, Jesus fed this number of people with two fish, five loaves. Uh, this is an incredible thing. This is undoubtedly one of Jesus' greatest miracles. And the, the crowd that he feeds are aware of this. They, they, their minds are blown. They're like, what? We've, we've never seen anything like this before. So much so, it says, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Uh, so literally, they're grabbing Jesus by the arm to install him as king before the proper time, which of course is the time to come. Uh, Jesus realises this, so he kind of slinks through and he, it says he withdraws to a mountain, likely to pray. The disciples, though, Jesus' disciples, they, they don't withdraw to the mountain. They stay with the people. And likely into the evening, they're telling stories about Jesus. Uh, the crowd undoubtedly are asking them questions about Jesus because they ultimately were also involved in this great miracle of feeding the 5,000. And as they chilled out, enjoyed some leisure time, uh, they kind of chatted and hung out with the people. In the evening, though, when the time came to kind of move on, it says to the disciples that they got into a boat and they were about to sail across the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the shore. As they get into the boat, after rowing for about three or four miles, they're hit with a monstrous storm. Jesus, of course, isn't in the boat with them. Jesus is still on the mountain. The mountain likely overlooked the, the Sea of Galilee, meaning Jesus likely was able to see his disciples as they struggled in the boat. And Jesus would come down from the mountain, walking across the water, just so he can get into the boat of his friend's troubles. The next morning, the, the crowd from the day before, they would wake up. It's breakfast time. They're hungry. And so they look for Jesus. I wonder why. And as they look for Jesus, they realize that he's not on their side of the island at all. And they're confused because they know that Jesus didn't get into the boat with disciples the evening before. So they themselves get into boats looking for Jesus the next morning. And they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they're shocked to find Jesus. They're shocked to find him. And they, they realize something miraculous must have happened at night. And so soon after, the last miraculous event of the feeding of the 5,000. And so they are really, really excited and you can hear it in what they ask. They ask Jesus, they say this, Rabbi, when did you come here? Uh, they're, they're like, oh, what, what's happened? What's happened? Uh, interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't actually answer the question. Uh, Jesus is aware that this crowd is only really interested in his power and not really at all interested in his person. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, actually, guys, I walked on water last night to get here because he understands to do so would ultimately be putting fuel on the fire of their kind of misdirected fascination. What this crowd realizes is in a cost of living crisis, uh, this Jesus might just be a one-man food bank. They realize that if, if we're going to follow this, this Jesus, there may be significant upside if, if we can get bread anytime we want, if our boats can kind of, we can just walk on water maybe, uh, when our boats spring a leak. And so they see Jesus as being this kind of uh, great slot machine. And, and Jesus, well, he calls them out. This is what happens. It says, and they said to him, 
Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Translation, guys, it's breakfast time and you're just hungry. You don't really want me. Guys, let me explain to you. When I was feeding 5,000 people physically, I was making a point about myself spiritually. About this crowd, they're only interested in Jesus' presence. Not interested in Jesus' presence. And it must have been frustrating for Jesus. You kind of get why Jesus would on occasion perform a miracle for a person and ultimately tell them, don't tell anybody about this. Uh, Because for some, for some, these types of miracles can just be a distraction. And it it does make us ask the question, one of the great questions that many would ask, perhaps, perhaps it's a question that you've asked or you're asking. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, why didn't he just like, reveal himself? Why didn't he just come down in, in bright, shining light rather than humility and humanity? If, if Jesus really wanted people to, to follow him and believe in him, why not come in glory? Because if he did, if Jesus came down in glory like right now and said, I am Jesus, of course I'd believe. And that's a really important question for us to consider, I would suggest. Uh, and let me say this. Um, b- believing is more than being able to give intellectual agreement to something. That's important. I go so far as to say that that's vital. But if, if that's all believing was, um, then the devil would be saved. If indeed the realm of the angelic could be saved, which of course they can't. Because, because the devil knows who Jesus is and the demons confess who Jesus is. But they still don't believe. They don't love him. Actually, the Bible says the contrary, that they seek to war against him. That's the war going on right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says this, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The devil's able to kind of pretend somehow to be like a holy angel. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, Satan was hurled to earth from heaven and his angels with him. Meaning that there was a time in history when angels of darkness posed as angels of light, not caring for the person of Jesus, but for the perks of their heavenly stint. Satan then, a former one-time resident of heaven, saw glory. And he has far superior intellect than anyone anyone on earth. Yet despite the glory that he saw and the intellect he possesses, he still doesn't bow the knee to Jesus. Not yet, anyway. The same could be said of Judas. Uh, Judas, who given his proximity to Jesus as one of the twelve, he saw glory. He saw glory. Judas would have seen Jesus perform thousands and thousands of miracles for people. 
Yet despite the glory that he saw, Judas didn't bow the knee to Jesus. We learn from John chapter 12, verse 6, that Judas bowed the knee to money. Stealing from the offering and, and, and selling Jesus for silver. This crowd, this crowd, this crowd saw glory. To that they could attest, to that they could confess. And then they cancelled him. And so friends, we mustn't think, we mustn't trick ourselves and think actually, if we saw glory, then we'd believe. Uh, because fireworks, doesn't, they don't produce followers. Uh, Jesus then didn't come to predominantly anyway be confessed as the bread of life. Uh, he came to be consumed as the bread of life. And just like with anything, right, if bread is set before you, 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 must, you must take it, you must appropriate it, you must receive it, you must bring it into yourself, as it were, with both hands and feed it to yourself. And to really feel the benefit of bread, you do it on a, on a daily basis. And as you receive the, the bread into your mouth, you, you, you chew and you savour and you swallow. You chew. You chew the things that this book says. It's hard to understand a lot of it. You kind of chew, you wrestle with it. That's where the intellect comes in. You kind of, the, the sayings of Jesus. And, and as you break it down into kind of smaller pieces so that you can kind of understand and manage them, you begin to taste the beauty. You begin to savor the, the sweetness of the grace of Jesus Christ, his love for you, his mercy towards you, his, his generosity for you. You begin to savor the, the beauty, the sweetness of Jesus, and then you swallow you must swallow. You take the word of God, you break it down, you enjoy what it's saying about salvation, but you must believe. And as you swallow, it, it starts to sustain you. As you swallow, it begins to provide you even with nutrients. And as the nutrients are going into you, you're not even aware that what's going on in your, your spirit, but it is happening all the while as Jesus goes down deep into your innermost parts and begins to sustain your inner person. And so while God's glory doesn't necessarily produce affections, God's grace does. Because Jesus, the, the bread of life, would give up his life for you to consume so that you wouldn't be like this crowd, so that you would not merely taste and see that his gifts are good, but you would taste and see that the Lord is good. But this crowd, they don't receive Jesus like this. Um, rather than receiving Jesus as the bread of life, they, they, they more receive Jesus as the, the chewing gum of life. And I would, might I suggest that this is the, the primary way that people receive uh, Jesus today. Uh, because so many will, will kind of like Jesus' sweetness, but at the same time find him hard to swallow. It's possible to, to, to admire Jesus' teaching on love and, and social justice. It's possible to respect Jesus' dignifying of women and his love for the poor. It's possible to enjoy Jesus' gifts such as music, art, sex. It's possible to, to receive Jesus and enjoy his sweetness, but then at the same time afterwards, spit him out. 
And to receive Jesus in that way, ultimately what you're doing is you're receiving Jesus really as a genie. What this crowd wanted more than anything was a genie, not Jesus. They wanted to be able to rub Jesus on the belly and for him to kind of appear and do whatever they want. Give them bread. Yes, please. Fix their boats. Yes, please. But when it came to uh, having a vibrant, uh, dynamic, two-way relationship, uh, they wanted to put the bottle kind of to the back of the room and let it collect dust. Uh, These people, ultimately, they're looking to use Jesus. They're looking to use Jesus to build their kingdom rather than serve Jesus to build his kingdom. And to receive Jesus in this way is not not to receive the real Jesus. And so, therefore, friends, let me ask you, and if I might be so bold, which one are you longing for more in your life right now? Are you longing more for genie or Jesus? Be honest with yourselves. The truth is, if you, if you were to receive Jesus as a genie, ultimately you're, you're not receiving the real Jesus. And if you were to believe a gospel that was just genie, you're receiving a, a, a false gospel. And that false gospel actually has a name. It's called the prosperity gospel. What we have in this passage is we have a mega church that subscribes to prosperity teaching. And just as there are thousands of people in the passage, prosperity teaching gets thousands of people in the pews. As pastors, preachers, and prophets on TV, radio, or in person preach exclusively health, wealth, and prosperity, whipping people up into a frenzy, usually demanding that they give as a demonstration of their faith and to be able to get their healing. They peddle this stuff, and it's a wicked thing. Let me say this, we believe in healing, we believe in uh, blessing, we believe in favour, we believe in giving. Amen, amen, amen. But we also believe in the whole counsel of God. And we believe that there are verses that talk about health, wealth and prosperity, and we pursue them wholeheartedly. But there are also other verses in the Bible that talk about patience, that talk about long-suffering, that talk about waiting. This is what we believe. And so what John is ultimately doing is he's giving two kinds of example. He's giving a negative example, the prosperity believers of this crowd, and he gives a positive example of the disciples in the boat. And the way John does it is is fascinating, at least to me. In the chapter, John chapter 6, he starts off by telling the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He then moves to this kind of what would seem like a random story of Jesus calming the storm. Then he moves to the conversation where Jesus calls himself the bread of life and the dispute that follows where he's cancelled as we have just had read for us. But this is what it says in relation to the calming of the storm that comes directly after the evening of feeding the 5,000. It says this, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. 
But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Now, John the writer, he's in this boat. And what's interesting is what he doesn't say, he doesn't say is this, he doesn't say Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the waves. Doesn't say that. Although we know that he did. Because in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew tells this exact same story and he mentions that's what happened, that's how the storm ultimately got calmed. And John isn't saying that didn't happen, but he's just saying that's not important. He omits it. And actually what's interesting is if you listen carefully, you'll notice that John doesn't even mention what happened to the storm. But he said this to them, it is I, as he's walking on water, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What happened to the storm? Truth is, for, for John and the others in the boat, the storm, the, the storm ended when they saw Jesus. The storm ended when they saw Jesus. Were, were the disciples in the boat afraid of the storm? they were of course they were but for the disciples in the boat this storm wasn't the storm for the disciples in the boat the storm was going through this storm without Jesus and so while this storm didn't stop as they saw Jesus the storm did. And I'll say this to you, friends. There is nothing more frightening in all of life than going through the storms of this life without Jesus. There's nothing more frightening. And so great was their joy in having Jesus with them in that boat. It's almost like, it's almost like time stood still. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Their hearts were so gladdened and their joy so full as they worshipped him, as they adored him, as they embraced him, as they bowed before him, as they gazed upon him. Their hearts were so full, they didn't even realise they'd got to the shore. Because he was their destination. So much so, they didn't even realise that they were at their physical destination. These disciples would rather heavy storms in life with Jesus than calm waters without. Is that true for you? These are not men that have been chewing bubble gum. These are men that have been receiving bread. And the point of this scripture, the point of this chapter is not to make you feel bad for wanting things. Uh, what I'm not saying is kind of like, um, you can have Jesus or his, his gifts, 
We, we can't kind of say, no, no, you, you guys, you want healing. Uh, you, you need a miracle. You want a wife. Uh, you want a baby. No, you, yeah, I want Jesus. No, you can, you can have that, but I, I, just, give me, just give me Jesus. And that's not what we're saying here. Um, Jesus himself says, give, pray like this, Matthew chapter 6. Pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. There's that word again. That is, Lord, Father, give us the things that we need today, whether physical or financial. Jesus says, pray it. Good, pray it. Nor am I trying to kind of bifurcate and separate Jesus from his gifts. I'm not trying to say, um, you know, Jesus is separate from his gifts. They're one. In fact, the way that you get to know Jesus, certainly one of them, is by receiving his gifts with thanksgiving, and it points to something of his heart. And so we must be careful as well, because hearing kind of teaching like this can kind of ruin your prayer life. What God wants, ultimately, is ultimately for you to see all the goodness, all of the delights, all of the pleasures, all of the gifts that you've ever received in your whole entire life, every last one, he wants you to see as signs. He wants you to see as a sign. Because the truth is, with signs, a sign is never the end goal. A sign is never a place to camp. A sign always exists to point to something greater. That was Jesus' problem with the people. He says, here's the issue here. You are seeking me, but not because you saw signs, but you ate your fill of the loaves. What Jesus is saying here is, you guys saw the wonder. Wow, amazing miracle. You guys saw the wonder, but you didn't see the sign. Truly, the, the signs of Jesus, they're, they're problematic, if we're being honest, of sorts. Because the signs of Jesus are wonderful. So wonderful that we can just be fixated about the sign and move past, to, to, excuse me, fixated about the wonder and miss the sign. But ultimately, what these signs are is they're breadcrumbs. They're breadcrumb, breadcrumbs given through life to point you always to Jesus, the bread of life. And I say they're breadcrumbs because they do come from the loaf. They come from Jesus himself. Because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What food is to the body, I am to your soul. And where if you do not eat, you will die. If you do not receive Jesus, you will die. And where you have all through your life been looking, searching, longing for the, the whole filler. Inside all of us exists a whole, a longing for significance, a longing for meaning, a longing for, for, to know who we are to know the meaning of life, where we have all had have this whole. We have all ultimately, to varying degrees, put our, our trust in these other things, like, 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 like food, like, like the gym, like beauty, like social media, like our children, like sex, like our careers, like Netflix, like alcohol, all these things, though they are not intrinsically bad. But Jesus says, I see, I see you, dear child. I see where you've been longing to, to fill your hole with other things. But I say to you, I am the bread of life. I am the whole filler. I am the sustainer. I am the nourisher. I am the satisfier. I am the nutrition. I am the manna. I am the reason that God created bread. I am the reason that God created the digestive system so that you could understand something of what it means to receive me and have me in your life and for me to sustain you and for me to change you from the inside and for me to help you to live forever. 
And you don't receive Jesus the the bread of life by putting more money into the buckets. You don't receive Jesus the bread of life by trying harder not to watch porn. You don't receive Jesus the bread of life by trying to be more chirpy in your fight against depression. You don't receive Jesus the bread of life by works of the law, as the Bible said. Where Where works come is in our passage. Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Let me break it down as simply as I can. Christianity is not about trying to be a good person and being judged at the end of your life as 51% good and then kind of getting into heaven. Christianity is the opposite of that. That that is um, quite possibly the, the biggest lie in human history. It's actually a satanic lie. What the gospel is, is believing in Jesus. Believing that he died for you personally and rose for you bodily. And while believing isn't a work, while believing isn't kind of you earning your salvation, believing is believing. It's a gift given by God. There is a response that it demands. And that response is this. You must repent of your sins. You must give up on trying to earn your way into heaven. And you must put every ounce, every drop of your hope, not on your morality or deservedness, but in Jesus' morality and deservedness. And this is true no matter how old you are. If, you've been, if you're not yet a Christian and you would like to feast on Jesus the bread of life for the first time and become a Christian, or if you've been a Christian for over 80 years, it's repenting and it's believing. It always is that. Therefore, repenting and believing, they're the two tools you need to feast on Jesus. Repenting is the knife Believing is the fork. And it's through this cutlery that you bring Jesus, the bread of life, to your mouth. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father. Um, it's lovely. My son was in the front row. I don't know where he's gone. Um, <laughs> he's had enough. Okay. Yeah, well. Um, I'm a dad, and I, there are things in the run-up to becoming a dad that I'm... You, you kind of really look forward to kind of joys. And um, for me, that was um, one of them anyway, was um, seeing my sons um, in their first Arsenal shirts. Um, <laughs> burn their first Tottenham shirts. Um, um, I love how that got the biggest response. I've been preaching about Jesus for 30 minutes and people, it's, it's Arsenal, right? Um, but, but one of the um, gifts that um, I never bargained for, actually, um, was, was the joy that I receive um, from seeing my hungry sons feast. Um, there's something that, it, it just does me good, I don't know why. And, um, it's a thing, I, I've checked on mum's net, I'm not just the only kind of weirdo. And, um, and uh, it's, it's amazing, honestly, when I see they're hungry, I love it when I see kind of ketchup on fingers, uh, breadcrumbs round the mouth, uh, sniffing between bites. 
I just love it. As I provided this food, yes. And of course, it, it, it's a picture of the father who uh, provides his children uh, with good food in Christ. And this, when you, when you think about it, this should transform our repentance. So often when we think about repenting, saying sorry to God, having a change of mind, we think of it as the darkest part of our day, right? We, we think, oh, you know, we come to God um, through Jesus Christ, tail between legs, feeling guilty, probably feeling ashamed. But it's not. It's not. Repentance isn't the darkest part of the day, it's the lightest part of the day. Uh, repentance, what repentance is then, is you pulling up a chair at God's table. And what God sees as you begin to repent and once again say to, say to the Lord, I choose not to walk by sight, but walk by faith. You put your faith in Jesus once again, you realign yourself. What God sees is you hungrily feasting on his son, Jesus. Catch up on your fingers. Breadcrumbs round your mouth. Polishing off the bowl. Sniffing between bites. And, and that's the beauty of this wonderful gospel. That God, when we come to him, far from being disappointed, he's filled with delight as his prodigal sons and prodigal daughters return home. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to go to the communion tables, which really is it's really God's dinner table. And this is the appropriate time to get your cutlery out. It's the appropriate time to just confess and repent and also express faith in Jesus once again, saying, Lord Jesus, you are my only, the only basis on which I could be forgiven right now. That's, that's faith. That's faith. And as we, as we, as we look upon the, the, the wine, it reminds us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. As we receive the bread, that word again, it reminds us of Jesus, the, the bread of life. And as we consume the physical bread and the physical wine, it helps us just to consume once again Jesus' spiritual sacrifice for us that enabled us to be forgiven. And so as we come, don't let this be the don't be dreary, don't be gloomy, don't be morose. Yes, it's appropriate for there to be a level of contrition as we come to God, yes, in repentance. But this is a happy moment. Just as the prodigal son's father was already waiting for his son, running out to meet him, God the Father, through his spirit, is already waiting for you at the tables right now. And you can meet with him in a new and fresh and living way. If, you, if you're not a Christian, or you, if, you, if, you don't, if you know it's, it's not right for you to take it in as much as you, you, you don't want to become a Christian, and then feel free just to sing and enjoy um, as we sing. But if you, even for the first time, you think, do you know what? I think I really need this bread of life. Even for the first time, please come and be welcomed and take the bread of wine for the first time. I'm going to quickly pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his humility that he would come so that he can give his life. You, you were born to die, ultimately, Jesus.
And you did it for us. You did it because you loved us. Lord, what other God is there like this? There's no other God like you. There's no one like you. You were just different. You are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our adoration. Lord Jesus, we say we would rather rough storms with you than calm waters without you. We would rather that. Lord Jesus, we want you. We want the real you. Would you come and be with us? Would you come and meet with us? Would you come and and transform us? Give us all that we need as we now feast on you in worship and communion. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.